This is Louisiana Considered. I'm Carl Lengel. On today's show, some traditional celebrations this time of year are grounded in some pretty basic ideals. Harvest celebrations, preparation for dark, cold winters. Historian Dr. Laura D. Kelly will join us later with some fascinating history. And as the weather improves, the opportunities to deepen your cultural knowledge across this extraordinary landscape we call Louisiana... Fan. For example, this Saturday, the Tunica Biloxi Language and Culture Revitalization Program will extend an open invitation to basket weavers for a day of weaving in Marksville. We'll also hear from Elizabeth Pirit Mora about this intertribal summit. And the Louisiana Book Festival takes place in Baton Rouge this weekend. Susan Larson, host of The Reading Life on WWNO and WRKF, will bring a brief reflection on the value of the Louisiana Book Festival's place in Louisiana's cultural history. Up first, though, how do you solve a problem like Jackson, Mississippi's failing water infrastructure? It recently left hundreds of thousands of people without safe tap water for over a month. Well, for some, like the suburb of Byram, Mississippi, the solution is to go your own way. But as Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom reports, experts argue the answer isn't water independence, cooperation. Byram, Mississippi has a vigilante plumber, and his name is Richard White, aka the town mayor. This is the deal right here. This is where I came the other night. This this is 110. Let's take a look at it, okay? White shows us a new brick house. It's got a big garage and is in the middle of a new development. It's also got a muddy mess in the front yard. The owner recently called the mayor saying she's had a leak for about five months. Now, it's illegal for White to touch the water pipes that lead throughout his town. That's the city of Jackson's job. They own the pipes, and they're the ones responsible for fixing the problems. But Jackson says its water system is underfunded, and it has problems maintaining infrastructure just in its own city limits, let alone Byram. After five months of leaks, White got the word this house no longer had any water inside. So he came here at 8 p.m. with his slip joint pliers, opened the water meter box, and fixed it himself. And somewhere along the line, I think it was right in here, I went down on my knees, but I didn't, I didn't get hurt or nothing. But I mean, covered in a lot of mud. I was I had changed I had changed clothes before I come over here because I knew it was going to be nasty. But this is just not acceptable. White's ready to be done with this plumber by night gig, so he's proposing having Byram break off and run its own water system. We're going to have four wells and one tank. That's how, how much would that cost? Uh, about twenty-six million. Pretty small town. Twenty-six million sounds like a lot of money. It isn't. It is. But right now, there's a lot of money out there that you can use for long-range plans, and that's what we plan to do right now. Mississippi should receive more than $400 million for water infrastructure improvements from the federal infrastructure bill, according to the White House. But White's proposed solution of splintering off from Jackson's water system is actually the opposite of the national trend. Instead of breaking up, U.S. water utilities are merging together. Emily Simonson with the U.S. Water Alliance says there's a very good reason for that. We can think of it like a basic math problem. Basically, the fewer people getting their water from a system, the more each person has to pay for that water. And the United States has a lot of water systems with very few customers. Think about that for a second. We have more than 50,000 drinking water systems across the United States. Some of those serve fewer than 10,000 people. So those small systems get pretty expensive. And shrinking populations, like Jackson's, also means the price per customer goes up. But the opposite is also true. The more customers, the cheaper it is for everyone. 
This idea is why U.S. water utilities are partnering up all over the country. Over the last 30 years, Alabama has cut its number of water utilities in half. The number of private water companies in Louisiana has also shrunk over the last decade. And Jackson's Chamber of Commerce sent out a letter to state officials supporting the idea of a regional water system. That sounds all well and good, but if you're one of the Jackson suburbs with your own perfectly reliable water system, why join up with Jackson's failing one? As Jackson goes, so does the rest of the state. Andre Perry is a senior fellow with the Brookings Institute. He says Jackson is the economic driver of the region. So if Jackson's losing big employers or can't recruit new ones because of issues like water, well, then the Jackson Metro is going to be hurting too. But this sort of splintering, it certainly saves those particular institutions, but it's horrible for regional economic growth. Yes, but that's not my problem. My problem is Byer, Mississippi. Byer Mayor Richard White acknowledges breaking away from Jackson's water system will likely make it worse. But he doesn't think it's his town's job to pay for Jackson's maintenance backlog. Like any cooperation, teaming up to run a water system requires trust. And that's something seriously missing between Jackson and the other towns around it, like Byram. The bottom line here is they've had their opportunities. We have water out in our city almost monthly. And Jackson Mayor Chokwe Antar Lumumba has said he doesn't trust the other cities to make Jackson's water needs a priority, which leaves both Jackson and Byram on the path of taking on the very expensive task of running city water systems on their own. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Stephen Basaha. I'm Stephen Basaha. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration between public radio stations in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. You are listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. I'm Carl Lengel. And this is Water from Brad Paisley. Some traditional celebrations this time of year are grounded in some pretty basic ideals, harvest celebrations and preparation for dark, cold winters. Historian Dr. Laura D. Kelly joins us now to share the origins of Halloween and Dia de los Muertos. Laura, thanks so much for taking some time with us today. I am so happy to be back and to be able to talk about this subject with you. Thank I you. am so happy to have you. I mean, anytime you're here, it's always a pleasure. But this this one's a fun one. And yes. you kind of made the suggestion for this. What? Uh, well, I, let's just get started. What are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to talk about Halloween, but we're going to kind of move beyond what everybody thinks of Halloween and talk about the origins of Halloween and, um, and a bit more, kind of expand from there. Um, probably what a lot of people don't realize is that Halloween is a tradition that was brought in by the Irish. Um, it's a Celtic world. And they don't call it Halloween. They call it Samhain. And it's something and that they... How is that spelled? Because it's oh, not... <laughs> no, it's not spelled the way it sounds. No, it's spelled... Um, we would spell it S-A-M-H-A-I-N. And again, it's Samhain. And it's pronounced Samhain. Samhain. Yeah. Um, and... To explain that, you need to bring a linguist on the show. That's fine. <laughs> so we'll move ahead. We'll move ahead. I'll just tell you more about the origins of it. So in Ireland, this is probably one of the most important times of the year. We are October 31st, November 1st, falls just about halfway between the fall equinox and the winter solstice. And it is sort of a Celtic holiday schedule or Celtic annual calendar. You would think of it more as like a new year. 
um, we are ending that period of light and entering the period of darkness. Um, it's also that time when the veil between the living and other world is at its thinnest. And it's not just between the living and the dead, um, but between living and, as I said, other sort of creatures. And so we think of ghosts, we think of fairies, Irish fairies, not Disney version fairies. Um, Irish fairies can be much more malevolent and um, one should have a healthy respect for them. But if we look at the traditions that we have for Halloween and, and what kind of came from this Celtic world, this, you know, this world that Ireland inhabited, during this time, you would light a massive bonfire. And the bonfire is both to ward off spirits that would do you harm. You would look at that as also sort of a symbol towards gods of, of sun, because again, the sun is waning, darkness is increasing, you've pulled in all the harvest, you know that you're about to enter winter when food supplies are low. This is coming out of a very natural cycle that, yeah. again, not just Celtic tradition, mm -hmm. certainly, but indigenous populations around the world, this, this idea of harvest and this idea of rebirth. Yeah. But the idea, too, Northern Hemisphere going mm -hmm. into a very dark period and preparing for that. And preparing for it, exactly. And so one of the things they would do is you would take a turnip and they would take light, take some of the coals, some of the embers from the fire, put them in the turnip, carry it home and relight their hearth with it. So we get a jack-o'-lantern because what we have here in the Western Hemisphere is squash and we have pumpkins. And so we get that kind of the carving in the pumpkin and putting a light inside of it coming from that tradition of a turnip. Um, we get the trick-or-treating coming from also from Ireland with the idea that you need to appease the dead. You need to leave things for ghosts. You need to leave behind treats for them. Otherwise, they will perform tricks on you. But it wasn't pumpkins they were interested in leaving behind. It was something no. called souling. Is that where yeah. the idea of the cake or uh, gathering a cake, but the idea of children getting something that... Would getting then, yeah. getting something, yeah. So so again, it, it could be very individual to households. It could be very individual, and with what you leave for those ghosts, um, and what you were deciding to do to appease them, and even kind of moving forward a little bit and bringing in the children. One of the traditional Irish dishes around this time of year is cold cannon, and it's a very simple cabbage and onion and potato dish, but sometimes they would wrap coins in there for children to find. So I, I see a lot of our, like, children and having sort of merriment in what we case, we say trick-or-treat, meaning pranks, but coming from a more a darker tradition and a tradition that – you know, they were worried about things that went bump in the night. And right. There wasn't very... electricity. There wasn't any way of lighting unless you kept a fire going. No, I mean, and, and that was part of it. And you would keep that fire going. So you have these things and that that veil between the living and the dead, the veil between the living and other creatures such as fairies was a fear that they had. Fairies would come and take your child. It was called changelings and replace your healthy baby with a sickling baby. And so you wore, again, you wore disguises on this time of the year in order to fool ghosts, fool fairies, do things like this, scare them away, not have them recognize you, not have them want to come and do you harm. 
you mentioned a bunch yeah. of things already, masking, bonfires, yeah. the ideas of food. These are all very, very Louisiana. <laughs> we love these things. So yeah. this all just fell into place very naturally as immigrants started bringing the tradition over, and then it kind of evolved from that. It did. And um, and as you mentioned, too, it's, it's not the only immigrant population um, here in the United States to celebrate this time of year. Another Catholic Another Catholic, yes. So we have the Dia de los Muertos, which is also happening around the same time period and coming from Mexico and areas, um, but their indigenous populations in Michoacan and Oaxaca and other areas. And there, it's very much a going to the grave site, to the tomb, cleaning the tombs, creating altar of joyful. family members. It's very joyful. Yeah. So here it's it's less about things that go bump in the night and less about things that you're scared about and worried that may happen and more of the celebration and the remembrance of deceased ones. And the building of the altars are phenomenal, but having images of your loved ones, things that they loved put up there, the flowers, but also the tending to the graves and the bringing together of family members to celebrate. And here in New Orleans, of course, we have some beautiful um, opportunities to see some of these altars. But I always, you know, think about, you know, maybe making your own special one. And, of course, with its Catholic heritage, we celebrate this with All Saints Day and All Souls Day. If you stop and think about it, we go out to a graveyard, we clean the tombs, we leave flowers, we may leave other offerings, things that that deceased person, you know, loved. Um, I have seen little bottles of whiskey on some Irish tombstones. I've seen old Guinness, um, <laughs> you know, and, um, and sort of sending them on their merry way. So I find it fascinating that it's always around this time of the year. And that midway point when we really begin to notice how much we're losing light. And if we were all still in an agricultural society, how the harvests would have been pulled in. And you're setting into winter. And it's a wonderful time to have that kind of remembrance of those who have gone before us. It's kind of a time of reflection, actually, yeah. because things are shutting down uh, in the natural cycle. So for three, four months, you get ready and... Just you do. think about things. You think about things, exactly. And We could do that again, couldn't we? <laughs> Just shut down for three Oh, we tried that. It didn't work, I guess. Yeah, no, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't say that. that. <laughs> All right. Different altogether. Laura, it is such a pleasure to have you come in and sit down and just freewheel about these wonderful things that you share with us. It is wonderful, and I think it's... Um, when we have holidays that we think of as being distinctly American from the United States to to realize and to recognize their immigrant roots and how they've added yet that other layer of culture and heritage that we've taken and woven into our own and made something new out of it. But um, the origins of it are, are deep and from other shores. We are one big gumbo. We are. That was historian Dr. Laura D. Kelly. You're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF.
That's the Tempest Quartet and Especial Dia de Muertos. As the weather improves, the opportunities to deepen your cultural knowledge across this extraordinary landscape of Louisiana expand. This Saturday, the Tunica Biloxi Language and Culture Revitalization Program is extending an open invitation to basket weavers for a day of weaving in Marksville. Joining us now is Elizabeth Pirit Mora of the Tunica Biloxi Language and Culture Revitalization Program with some pertinent information on the coming summit. Elizabeth, thanks so much for taking some time with us today. So tell us a little bit about traditional Tunica Biloxi basket weaving. What does the Tunica Biloxi basket look like? How is it made? What distinguishes it from other tribes? Yes, today Tunica Biloxi baskets are often made of longleaf pine needles. Traditionally, our tribe made baskets made of river cane or, or palmetto stems. These these materials are are very common in the southeast uh, region. Tribes, you know, such as 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 the Tunica Biloxi, Choctaw, Kushada, often use the same materials. However, you know, there there are slight differences between you know the styles, the way these baskets are made. That would be in the type of weave, or yes. Um, so weaving can be. Um, it can be similar. It, it can be, you know, sometimes very distinct. Tritamacha baskets are often very distinct. In central Louisiana especially, it's sort of a, a meeting ground, a, a melting pot, you know, of, of uh, many different uh, cultures, as well as indigenous cultures. And so there was, you know, a lot of influ- influence between um, the various groups of tribes and you know, often there was an intermarriage and traditions were shared. Um, so you might see, you know, um, a basket. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of my own family, um, you know, that that's it may be a Tukabluxi basket, but, you know, there might be similarities to, you know, um, Choctaw styles, traditions. Let's talk a little bit more about the summit itself. Beginners are encouraged to attend. What's your advice to beginners who want to try basket weaving, but might be just a little daunted by it? I mean, thinking about those pines, how do I make that work? I encourage learners to try at least once. That is the way you learn. You know, you learn through um, mistakes. Um, You learn by, you know, trying, uh, you know, more than once. But um, at, at the basketry summit, the Tinkabluxi Language and Culture Revitalization Program offers a beginner's workshop for pine needle basketry, and, and we teach learners how to start a basket. We encourage um, Indigenous youth and local community me- members who are interested to participate. This is a way of, of uh, you know teaching cultural awareness and cultural appreciation. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. That was Elizabeth Perit Mora of the Tunica Biloxi Language and Culture Revitalization Program. For more info, go to tunicabiloxi.org. Also this weekend, got to get this in, Louisiana Book Festival. And here with just a real quick little essay for you is host of The Reading Life on WWNO and WRKF, Susan Larson. What does this event mean to Louisiana? 
One of the things I love most about the Louisiana Book Festival is that it's where literary life, which is such a private thing, you know, because we write in private, we read in private. But this is a moment where the literary life really meets the public life, and it does something different when you take books and writers out of classrooms and libraries and bookstores and put them in festival tents or put them on a sidewalk on a, in a park or put them in a state capitol building room. So there's there's a different feeling. It's like literature has been cut free a little bit in a new space. And there are lots of festivals in Louisiana. You know, festivals are really our art form. But I think the oldest literary festival is Tennessee Williams and New Orleans Literary Festival. And, of course, there's Words of Music. Now the New Orleans Book Festival at Tulane, Saints and Sinners. But this one is really devoted to showcasing writers statewide. And the whole writers from all over Louisiana come to this and people from all over Louisiana come to this. And they come to meeting rooms at the Capitol. They come to the state library. A lot of people don't realize we have a state library and what a terrific resource it is. This is also where a lot of people discover the state museum. So it's a great place to take books and readers and writers and put them in places where public life is determined. And it puts writers and citizens right into the action. So many people go to the top of the calendar, I mean, top of the Capitol, and then they go downstairs to the basement to one of the meeting rooms or that cafe, which serves excellent gumbo that I can truly recommend. Another thing that happens at the Louisiana Book Festival, it's a moment that I always love. It's its when the Louisiana Writer Award is presented at the very beginning. And this year, David Armand is being recognized with the Louisiana Writer Award. And he is a Louisiana writer through and through. He's written poetry. He's written novels. He's written memoirs. And Louisiana has been fundamental to his life as a writer. So that's always very special to see a writer acknowledge home and, and what it means. The other great thing about this is that it's for readers of all ages. You can see kids and parents, school buses full of kids, whole families, and you see them in storytelling tents, doing craft activities, sharing food and music, and just seeing there's something so special about seeing young readers have stories come to life right before their very eyes and meeting some of their favorite storytellers. Another great thing, it's one of my favorite vistas during the festival. There's this long walkway between the state capitol and the state library. And as you go from one place to the next, the walkway is lined with publishers and authors, as well as, you know, tents for books and exhibitors with publishing companies. So you can browse to your heart's content. And it represents a wide range of interest. You know, Jim Davis at the, at the Center for the Book, along with Robbie Wilson, work all year long to put this thing together. And they make sure that there's something for everyone. I mean, if you're interested in shrimping in South Louisiana, if you're interested in Louisiana politics or history, if you're thinking about climate change, if you're looking for children's books or a good novel or even a great cookbook, you'll find it. So you can choose between issue-related discussion or complete flights of fantasy or, or just pure entertainment. So I'd say it's the most democratic of festivals, and it's a reminder of how much living here really inspires our writers and how much we love our Louisiana stories. The Reading Life's Susan Larson. 
with a reflection on the Louisiana Book Festival this weekend. This has been Louisiana Considered. I'm Carl Lenkel. Thanks to our guests today and to our engineers, to our producer, Alana Schreiber. Major support for Louisiana Considered is provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience with additional support from Southern Strategy Group. Thank you.